sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We talk about... That's a pretty good one. Rumor and innuendo about your favorite bands. But we also say often, we also talk about your favorite songs. And so today, we're headed in a song direction. We want to talk about a particular tune that you probably know. Here's here's the question that we got from Craig. Craig says, Is it true that Werewolves of London was supposed to be an Everly Brothers song that would be marketed as a dance craze like the Monster Mash? What? Yeah. Um, what? The Everly Brothers first <laughs> with the Werewolf song and a dance craze. All those things are awesome. Yeah, uh, what a great question. So the timing's funny on this because I was just on, uh, I just recorded an episode with the podcast, Our Nerdiest Thing, Friends of Ours, and they have a future episode coming up. I don't think it's going to air until December, but they, they talk about books and they read this book where there is the animating plot line is about a band breaking up. And they said, hey, would you come on the show and talk about the craziest band breakups? And I said, oh, well, yes. I mean, that's those are the guest spots we live for. So I mentioned in passing that the Everly Brothers had a had a breakup. I, I didn't use them as one of the key examples. I ended up talking about, you know, the Eagles and Simon and Garfunkel, but uh, the Everleys, mm, it was not good. Yeah, we'll talk about the crescendo or the coup de gras or the end of this, <laughs> how they break up. <laughs> the end. But yet, yeah, they didn't get along. They, they did not get they did not get along. Yeah. Bad breakup stories to me are always more fun when the band's output doesn't sound like conflict. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Sure, Guns N' Roses had issues with each other, but Conflict was their brand. Let It Be Me and Crying in the Rain, on the other hand, by the Everleys, they don't really reek of amphetamine addiction and angry guitar. No, but this there's a famous quote that Phil Phil said, and this, this is a very famous quote, quote, we only had one argument, it's been lasting for 25 years. And he said that in like 1970. <laughs> so imagine... <laughs> How awful they had to like this going to work every day with your family and how much it sucked. They were kids in Iowa singing with their parents on the radio, their mom and dad. Uh, they had a, his dad. The dad was like, I don't know, he worked in mines or something, but he somehow got airtime on the radio and they had like the Everly family singing hour. And then they moved to Tennessee and the boys are teenagers. And I don't, you know, they briefly lived in Knoxville. I don't know if you knew that. True. It's something yep. you something you have in common with them. And mm-hmm. they get a spot on another regional radio show and then they catch the attention of Chet Atkins, who somehow Huge. knows them, which is crazy. And he's working at RCA Victor and brings them in. Right. So all listeners of the podcast, you're gonna understand this next move. If you're new to the podcast, this is a very typical move with a musician. Mm-hmm. They sign a very terrible publishing deal, and well, that's how that starts. Yes, but in terms of bad deals, this one's like a little more interesting than a lot of the ones we talk about because it involves mm-hmm. the songwriting. Songwriting. Yeah. So let's just we'll nutshell it for the nerds, right? In the early '60s, they're getting some success, and they decide to record this song that isn't owned by their publisher, which is a big no-no. And the publisher gets pissed because you know they're not going to get paid. They don't get paid. 
That's right. And so he essentially blacklists them from using the publishing company as performers. So the Everly Brothers as performers cannot get songs from this publishing company. But here's the trick. Here's how that messes them up. The Everlys have a deal with this publishing company as songwriters. Right. So everyone, that means that the Everly Brothers can't record their own songs. Thus commences a mix of not writing their own songs for several years and then intermittently trying to write under pseudonyms and it doesn't work and they just keep getting in fights with a record label. It's very, it's very tense. Yeah. And during all this, there's a stent in the Marine Corps Reserve. Uh, there's mounting addictions, nervous breakdown. You'd never know that the Everly brothers were two wild and crazy guys, but they were. Man, they really were. And while all this personal shit's going on, something else happens on a larger scale. And again, this is something if you're a, a student of the show or a student of rock history, you know this. Uh, 1964 happens. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> then it happens, yeah. Yeah, so the, right. the Beatles show up. And to give context so we all understand setting, place, everything, the Everlys used to tour with Buddy Holly. Do you know that they get credit for showing Buddy Holly suits? Like, Buddy Holly used to go out in, like, jeans. This was apparently a yeah. thing. And think about it. That's what Epstein did to the Beatles. Yeah. To come out of the leather suits and yeah, put yeah. them into suit suits. But but, but your, your point is right. I don't want to miss that. Your point is that they're the old guard, right? So the, by the end of the oh, 60s, yeah. by the end of the 60s, after the Beatles show up, the Everlys are respected, but they're not let, like, people don't really love them. Like, basically, after the early 60s, they don't chart anymore. And, and you know, they get to do cool stuff, like they guest host for the Johnny Cash show when Johnny Cash is gone. But it, it's in this period, in the late 60s, where they are high, they start hiring these studio musicians to help them, and they hire this guy who's been kicking around doing studio stuff and trying to make it as a musician in his own right. And so to play keyboards and be their musical director and help them write songs, they employ a guy named Warren Zevon. And this dude is so interesting if you don't know much about Warren Zevon. So there is this somewhat famous story about his high school his sorry junior high music teacher hooking him up with a chance to go on a recording session with igor stravinsky which the russian composer i'm gonna be honest i didn't know that igor stravinsky's timeline was in the 1970s like i to- i totally or 50s or whenever that was i totally missed that you know when i first like we were reading about this i was like didn't this happen like, wasn't he throwing, like, paper airplanes at Beethoven? Like, yeah, I, was I honestly no. wasn't. I, I'll just be honest. I have a little bit of a blind spot. There's somebody listening to this show who's like, you guys need to brush up on your classical music. Yeah, you're right. We do. And if you have any resources you want to recommend, please send an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com. But, yeah, I was. I, I know the name, Igor Stravinsky. I did not realize that he and Warren Zevon were alive at the same time, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. And Warren's, a, I mean, we you may know him for a lot of things, but he was a great guy. He's a piano player. player. I mean, that's what he's doing for the Everly's. He's playing keys. But he doesn't stick with school as a kid. He ends up dropping out of high school. He tries to make it in music. He's in a folk duo. I don't know if you knew all this about his history. I was flabbergasted by this. So he he does a folk duo. Then he starts writing songs. So he's writing songs from a young age. He lands one with the Turtles. There is a Turtles song Mm -hmm. written by Warren Zevon. And then he meets another name from the show, if you listen to the show, Kim Fowley. Oh yeah, yeah. Talk about a guy that drives a white van with no windows. 
here's a quote. Here's a Rolling Stone quote um, from Warren regarding Kim. Oh, this is from Warren. Is this from the crazy 1981 Rolling Stone piece? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and at some point in the interview, he said Kim Fowley asked him, and early on, quote, "Are you prepared to wear black leather and chains and fuck teenage girls and get rich?" And Warren said, <laughs> "I said yes." <laughs> Which That's it. Kim okay. Fowley is so gross. Let me just say, like, uh, we don't have time to get into Kim Fowley. If you don't know who that is, you'll hear about him in past episodes. You can you can check him out uh, on the internet and just be careful. You know, put it on private browsing. But yeah, he's gross. He's real nasty, and uh, has has this brief cameo in Rock and Roll History where where actually he moves some major characters through Rock and Roll History. But he's oh, gross. Yeah. yeah, he's gross. Uh, so Kim Fowley puts out this first record, and it fails, and he still has to pay the bills. He being Warren. Warren. So he is taking working musician gigs, and one of the gigs he takes to pay the bills is with the Everly Brothers. And so now we've connected Fat. the dots. Yeah, and there it is. Fascinating that these stars have, have aligned. And then the Everly Brothers break up in epic style. It's amazing. Will you regale us with that tale, please? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you were born to tell this story. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite breakup that stories that didn't happen was when like appetite for destruction was out. <laughs> I guess it wasn't like user illusion and the stones took GNR out for a few days. And that's where Axel said, this is the last guns and roses show. Oh, yeah. because too many people are dancing with Mr. Brownstone. Yeah. I and thought like, about using that one when I talked to our nerdiest thing, but that didn't, yeah. then they didn't break up. So that doesn't really count because this does. Yeah. So uh, Don Don Everly shows up drunk to a show in California and starts arguing on stage with his brother. This so, is what, like 73? Yeah. Yeah. 73. Um, and then Phil throws his guitar down and storms off telling everyone, I'm through with being an Everly brother. You know, you're, so you're, Phil, you're still going to be an Everly brother. It doesn't matter if you're on stage yeah, you or not. You can't change that. You, yeah, you can you have to get like a, a face implant and a new name. So Phil keeps trying to play for the sake of the gig and gets heckled. He shouts to the audience, the Everly Brothers died 10 years ago. And that's the end of the show. <laughs> so, so, so bad. Which puts us back pre-1964. So 1964 screws everything up. So it, both brothers try to do stuff on their own after this, over the next decade. And, he, and it's funny because they both use Warren. Warren will help them both separately. He's like a poor child of divorce. Keeps getting pulled back and forth to mom and dad's house. But he gets a little closer to Phil because they have the keyboards in common. Yeah, and here's what Warren does with just Phil. In the first part of the 70s, he arranges and plays keyboards on Phil's first and third solo albums. Those are respectively Star Spangled uh, Springer in 73, Mystic Line in 75. And he writes songs on Phil's second and third record, which is Phil's Diner. 74 in Mystic Line, 75. Side note, he also sells a song during this time to a Canadian named Murray McLaughlin, who will be the first to record a song that is very special to me called Carmelita. Warren eventually records this himself on his second record that won't even drop until 76. Brian, who does your favorite version of that song? So I learned about that from The Counting Crows. There's a, a ton of songs from the 70s especially that were in early repertoire for the Counting Crows. I mean, I, I big, bigger songs and really obscure songs. Everybody from Van Morrison 
to Bruce Springsteen to Fairport Convention in Towns Van Zandt. I learned about through the Counting Crows. They're very, you know, I like to say there's two types of bands. There's bands who want you to listen to their music and there's bands that want you to listen to music. And Counting Crows just love the heritage and the history of rock music. And so that's why I love them so much. But that, yeah, that's how I learned about them. How about your favorite version of Carmelita? I heard the Warren Zevon one first. Um, and thank goodness I heard that one first instead of the G.G. Allen one and <laughs> thought that G.G. Allen wrote the song because then my whole perception of G.G. Allen would change because it's, it's like a it's very a, it's nice, a very song. well-written song. Well, and yeah. here, you know, it's a very pretty song. And mm-hmm. one of the main lines in it is I'm all strung out on heroin on the wrong side of town. And it was for me, it was a really interesting song to hear where, and in this, you know, we'll talk about this when we talk more about Warren and his songwriting, but this was Warren's superpower was he was able to write very plainly and also very like very high level and very literary all at the same time. And this is a really good example of that. Where like he straight up just says, I'm all strung out on heroin on the wrong side of town. Pretty straightforward and sort of bald and shocking. But also the song's like weirdly poetic and beautiful. There's something that we've kind of glossed over, right? Introducing Warren Zevon. He's just like not a, a guy out of nowhere. He knows all the West Coast musicians that are coming up at this time. He's just in this position to be in studios all the time. And like with Robbie Robertson, when we talked about him, we said like, if you just expanded the frame quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, in, in yeah. a lot of these really famous rooms or at famous moments in rock history, you'd see Robbie Robertson hanging out. Warren is like sort of one of those characters. For instance, around the time of the story we're about to embark on Warren's living arrangements were with a young couple who had been recording together and just got an offer to join a legacy rock act together. And their names mm-hmm. were, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Warren was their roommate. He was the third guy yeah. in that apartment. In, in terms of being third wheel, I could have dealt with that. Um, <laughs> so the album that most people know Warren by is Excitable Boy, and that's produced by Jackson Brown because Jackson meets Warren and then takes to being his personal champion. Like the people know, we, we're going to talk about this, but in terms of being a songwriter, songwriter, people love Warren Zevon. So Jackson is some, is someone that people really respect too. So it really helps that he's in his corner. So, um, but Warren doesn't get an actual record deal post Kim Fowley. If it wasn't for Jackson Brown. No, I mean, he literally goes and leverages his own career a little bit to attach Warren to him, which is a dangerous thing to do. The more we talk about Warren, the more we'll get to this, but by the time they get to making Excitable Boy, Warren is a train wreck. And Jackson has connected himself to someone who has got a in, in, in the throes of addiction and is terribly hard to work with. And they end up still creating some crazy stuff together. But you mentioned you mentioned the, the album Excitable Boy. It is produced by Jackson Brown, but there's another producer on that record who we need to bring up, who is Wadi Wachtel. Yeah, and here's the 411 on, on Wadi. So he tries for several years in the 60s to make it as a performer on the East Coast. And then he goes to LA and he doesn't have any luck and he realizes he could make good money just basically being a, a session person. Um, and this is what he does. But one of those early gigs is when Warren Zevon hires him to come work on the Everly Brothers stuff in the early 70s. So they end up, you know, in each other's orbit. And he is Warren's guy for a big bulk of Warren's recorded output. Through like most of the 
seventies and eighties, and like maybe even into the early nineties. Yeah. But re- read the read the list of who Waddy will work with. Oh yeah, Waddy's no no slouch. Linda Ronstadt, Stevie Nicks, Randy Newman, The Stones, John Bon Jovi, James Taylor, and Iggy. The list goes on. That's just a hint. The list goes on. You didn't mention lead singer of Striper's Christian solo work, Michael Sweet. <laughs> Speak of the devil. This, He's no friend of mine. Listen. To turn from him this is, is what you we've got in mind. Definitely the first recorded output I owned by Waddy Wachtel was the second Michael Sweet solo album called Real, which was not good. I did not like that record very much. I loved the first one. And uh, you got to dig for it because it's not even on Spotify, but it is on YouTube. And there are at least two songs on which Wadi plays lead guitar. So bottom line, this dude's had a huge impact both on musical history and on me. <laughs> yeah, I will say first Striper record. Terrific. Um, also, um, Warren steals Wadi's wife. That's the thing. That happens. <laughs> Like, listen, I'm not even sure how we t- how we talk about this. Like, I-, I got to this point in the story, and I was like, well, shit, this is not what this episode is about. So I guess we just decide to accept it and move on. I don't know. I mean, because they did. They worked together for like two decades after this, but very much so. Crystal is married to Wadi and then ends up with Jackson Brown. Or not Jackson Brown. Sorry, Jackson. Ends up with Warren Zevon. Uh, but... I guess that's just how it was in the seventies. I mean, I don't know, man. What do we say about that? Yeah. Well, so connect, let's connect the dots, Brian. So let's put all these people we just ran through in that same room. Yeah, and it's getting confusing. There's a lot of characters. Okay, so it starts actually just with one person in one room, and that is our boy Phil Everly. Uh, he he's staying up one night in the seventies watching old movies, and he comes across this movie, this 1935 film that he likes called Werewolf of London. Uh, not to be confused with a movie that my parents let me watch when <laughs> I was seven, an American Werewolf in London in '81. Right? Those are different. Movies. Okay, so so that movie cites the Werewolf of London as an influence. Mm. It, it no does. But what most people know this movie for, the 1935 movie, is for the makeup. Now, if you're a film scholar and a rock scholar, you might know the name Jack Pierce. He becomes known for the Frankenstein makeup job he does in 1931 to transform Boris Karloff. And so when it comes time to make a werewolf movie, they call him. And this is a, this is a fun story because they bring the best guy in the game in to do the makeup. And they get this actor and I don't even remember the actor's name, but the guy they get to do it, he's like not into this obstructing his face for two reasons. One, because it's a lot of time that he has to sit in the makeup chair and two, because then people don't recognize him for his beautiful self. And so he sort of throws a fit and they basically underuse Jack Pierce and have him do this basic makeup job. And it becomes sort of ubiquitous with the idea of werewolf, like where the face just sort of slowly starts to transform and the, you know what I mean? It's like, so, and that is what will basically influence the way monsters look in pop culture for the next six decades. And it's, it's basically because they didn't use Jack Pierce enough (laughs) and his like underutilization is what sort of shapes the way we think about the Wolfman. Yeah. So, so let's get back to, so Phil's watching the movie and all of a sudden he hears, yeah. Um, so now, sorry, it's just anytime I can just say it out so, loud. So he's, he's um, watching the movie, and the next day he's at the studio with Warren, and it comes up. Like, I don't know if they're like sitting around talking about what they had done the night before or, or you know, what, what is happening, but he mentions it and he makes a joke to Warren. He says, 
because remember, Warren and Phil are writing songs together, right? So this is part of their business banter. And he says, you know, you should write a song about this, and it could be a dance craze like the Monster Mash. So that is sort of true. The, the question that we got was, was this originally an Everly Brothers song? That's It, it isn't really originally an Everly Brothers song. We're going to get to that. I don't want to step on it. But yeah. it does involve Phil Everly, and he does, at least half-jokingly, reference the Monster Mash when he says that Warren should give a shot at writing the song. Are you looking for a good rock and roll book? Do you watch a ton of rock and roll documentaries like me? Well, that's why I started the Rock Talk Studio podcast, to be the place to go for previews, reviews, and recommendations on rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies. Every first Tuesday of the month, the Rock Talk Studio gets you caught up on all the latest and points out where to go for the good stuff. Every 15-minute podcast explores the world of rock and roll books, docs, and movies from every possible angle to leave you with a no-doubt decision on where to spend your time and money. Fan or just casual fan, or maybe you're on the fence and you're looking for something new to check out, either way, I got you covered. Bonus episodes features interviews with talent like New York Times bestselling author Alan Paul, who just came on the show to discuss his new Allman Brothers book, Brothers and Sisters. Join me, Big Rick, every first Tuesday of the month as I host the Rock Talk Studio podcast, the ultimate review of rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies. Every now and then around Halloween, you probably, everyone's seen this now, there are these weird social media takedowns where they say that Monster Mash isn't a dance. I saw one of those this week, and I don't understand why people waste their time doing that. That that argument isn't even really true. Uh, because you don't understand the the context of what that song is is mocking, right? So here's here's the skinny on the Monster Mash, all right? It is true what a lot of people say on social media that it is a song about the dance craze. It's not actually a dance craze itself. So that is true. Yeah. But the reference to the mash is a is a reference, a sideways reference to the mashed potato which when this song came out was in fact a dance craze. So it's like making fun of the mashed potato, the monster mash, a monster doing the mashed potato, right? That's the least sexy name for a dance of all time. But it was very popular in 1962. So I I feel like you need that context to get the joke. The monster mash is much funnier when you realize that it's making fun of the mashed potato. Right, right. So... He tells Warren, at least half-jokingly, to write a song called Werewolf in London so that people could do the werewolf dance or something. Yeah, really, essentially. Totally true. Right, right. Yeah. And and you know how jokes among coworkers are, right? So, I mean, you and I used to oh, work. Yeah. You know, we work together all the time. We used to work in an office building together. Like, we definitely have done this, where it starts as a joke, and then it's like an aside, and then uh, it's a full-blown bit, and then it becomes a thing. Then you actually do it because you're taking it to like the nth degree because, you know, you've got something to prove. So this is where Diddy Wah Diddy shows up in this. This is, this is uh, where Waddy Wachtel right. walks yeah. into the room. The next time Warren is in the studio with Waddy and a guy named Leroy Marinell, he remembers this conversation. And he mentions the concept of Werewolves of London. And Waddy said, oh. <laughs> and now they're clearly off to the races. Uh, they they start to mess around and see if they can bring this ridiculous idea to life. So it's Warren, it's Waddy, it's Leroy, and then Warren's wife at the time, yes, used to be Waddy's, Crystal. That's right. She's there, and she's 
taken dictation. She's basically writing down what they're saying out loud. And I, I, I imagine it that it sort of becomes a thing where like you say a line and then I say a line and then Leroy says a line and they're just like going back and forth throughout the studio. Yeah, because it's bizarre, right? So here's a refresher if you haven't heard this in a while. I saw Werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand walking through the streets of Soho in the rain. He was looking for the place called Liho Fuchs. I know you say that, right? Yeah. You got yeah, it. Yeah, right? Okay. For to get a big dish of beef chow mein. So Liho Fuchs is a real place. Chinese restaurant located in Chinatown in London. And in oh, 74, okay. in 74, so this is like a right around that time, it had just become the first Chinese restaurant in the UK to get a Michelin star. So it was, yeah, so it was like very well known for that. Uh, It's not there anymore. It closed back in 08, and the location's been a couple of things ever since, but it was around for a long time. Had a nice run. Yeah, so here's the next verse. Ready? You hear him howling around your kitchen door. You better not let him in. Little old Graham, little old lady got mutilated last late. Sorry, I want to. It's just so hard to say. <laughs> little old lady got mutilated late last night. Werewolves of London again. By the third or fourth verse, you have this reference to Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr. And again, we're just we're sort of doing a lot of Hollywood history today. But that their father and son Hollywood legends known for their makeup portrayal of characters like Phantom of the Opera. And the Wolfman. And so you can see when you read the lyric sheet that these are some guys with a good sense of humor just like throwing lines back and forth at each other. And when you read about this song, this famous song, it has a lot in common with Jolene or I Will Always Love You. It's one of those things where Warren said that it took 15 minutes to write. Yeah, and the irony is that when they end up recording it, which we'll get to, it becomes much harder for them to execute on tape. But the creation process is very easy. But remember, these are just musicians goofing around, and so they don't really have serious intentions for this song at first. They're just sort of fulfilling the joke they made with Phil. You pointed this out earlier. Warren knows all... We talked about this. He knows all these California people in music at this time. He's in a lot of rooms, so a lot of people hear about the werewolf song. Dude, they hear about it immediately. So the the story goes, the next day, Zevon's got studio time booked with Jackson Brown because Jackson is in to cut Zevon tunes for demos to show to Linda Ronstadt in the freaking Eagles. That's how connected yeah. he was. This is before the sessions for the Zevon Studio album, so they're not even thinking about him. And so you can imagine, they're getting set up or whatever, and Warren tells Jackson the story. Hey, Phil mentioned this idea the other day, and Waddy and I are messing around, and here's what we came up with. And he starts reciting the lyrics to Jackson. And Jackson's like, dude, that's really funny. Show me how like, show me how it goes. And from there, this temporarily, for all intents and purposes, becomes a Jackson Brown song. Like, I don't know if people know yeah. this, but yeah. he starts playing it live. In fact, there's a mid-70s Jackson Brown Live bootleg that gets out with this song on it. And so Asylum Records, which is where Jackson and Warren will both record, they think they're getting this song on the next Jackson Brown record. He's not the only person to borrow this tune. Not to go completely sidetracking, which Brian and I do really well. We could just start talking about the Rolling Thunder review, but let's, we don't need to do uh, yeah, that. Dude, but I don't know, I don't know how we're going to not get distracted by that. That's like a whole companion episode. Right. <laughs> I got so distracted when so, creating, when writing this episode that I wasted like an hour. The third unofficial member of the show, Phil Medley, I was texting him being like, oh my God, dude, look at this bootleg I found, <laughs> which is in the show notes, by the way. So Rolling Thunder review, if you're not familiar with that, it's fascinating to 
It's a legendary tour where Dylan took this amazing group of musicians on the road with him. And they just basically did an actual review, which means they each band member gets their own songs. It's not a headlining Dylan show. He just shows up at the end. And if you know much about Rolling Thunder, one of the fun factoids is that Dylan finds this guy to take on tour to play guitar, who is also sort of this unknown entity who's been tooling around with his own band and then taking some studio work. And that guy's name is T-Bone Burnett. Yes. Far out. That T-Bone Burnett. He goes on to be a legendary producer. Uh, but on this tour, he gets to do a couple songs that he leads the band in. And he chooses to play Werewolves of London on some nights. So, like I said, in the show notes, there is a, an amazing December 4th, 1975 bootleg of this show. And... It is the whole. You should listen to the whole thing. If you like Dylan at all, it is Dylan at his peak. But you also get to hear T Bone Burnett do Werewolves of London, way like three full years before it's released on Excitable Boy. And does Warren take all of this as encouragement to put out his own record? Uh, not not his own version of this on a record. He yeah. he passes on it when they're working on the '76 record. Uh, he doesn't want to put it out. And so it takes until, like we've said, 78, excitable boy, for this to get pressed by anyone officially. But as I alluded to, despite the nonchalance regarding the song up to this point, when the band goes to record it, it becomes this almost insurmountable challenge. It's a very hard thing to record. I saw it reference that Waddy would sometimes compare the recording of this song, oh my gosh, to the filming of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Man, we are really deep in Hollywood references, man. But that's sort of the thing with 70s West Coast music, right? That was, was next door to Hollywood, so there was a lot of this. Yeah, that's a real thing. Yeah, he said that. Right now we're looking at this. Most of the budget for that entire record went to recording that song. <laughs> it, it takes Waddy seven different configurations of the band to get it right. He pulls in different musicians seven different times. And they do 59 takes. And guess, guess which of the 59 takes they used? Oh, it's early. It's the, be the first one. The second one. <laughs> uh, that, that's one of those moments where I'm sure one guy looked at another and was like, are we just wasting our lives? Like, should we get other jobs? And the musicians, they finally settled oh, on. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Yeah, these nobodies, John McVie and Mick Fleetwood. It's pretty apparent that there is just this real love-hate thing for this song with Warren. He won't record it. He finally does, and he takes all of this time and effort and most of the budget, and then famously... Waddy and Warren are pissed because they get a call from the record label and the record label loves it and they want to make it the first single. We, we maybe haven't been as clear about the type of musician and songwriter that Warren really is. And you need to understand, know that to understand this next part. Yeah, he's famously called Werewolves a, quote, dumb song for smart people. And I think that gives you some flavor on the type of stuff that Warren likes to do. Yeah, well, this may even be a better way to sum it up. There's a great piece in the show notes from The Guardian that makes this case that Warren was really a novelist caught up in the wrong writing format. Oh, yeah. And they point out in that piece that he hung out with writers. Like that were all his, his I mean, he obviously hung out with musicians too. We've already covered that. But he had a bunch of buddies, including like Carl Hyacin. One of the people that was like, he was in the room with a lot was Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Who's from the city where Brian and I currently yeah, we're, reside. We, we, so, have to, we have to be big Hunter fans, man. It's like loving bourbon yeah. and Hunter S. Thompson. That's our thing. Because, you know, if there's one thing that keeps us all going here in Louisville, it's mescaline and ether. <laughs> 
So imagine that the only thing anyone knew about Hunter S. Thompson was a sardonic joke essay he wrote about the Wolfman. And there was no other content to 90% of, of the world. It's sort of the situation here. Yeah, I mean, that is a, that is a really good way to explain it. Uh, we're kind of stepping on the punchline, but Warren's worst fears are realized. When it comes out on Excitable Boy in 1978, Werewolves of London, this dumbass joke song that he wrote for his old boss, becomes his biggest personal success, and it's what he becomes known for. And then it gets reinvented by someone who he probably would... Actually, I don't know. Do you think Warren Zevon and Kid Rock would get along? No. But I, I think that the money thing probably helps. Um, because, well, it helps the estate, but he wouldn't have had anything to do yeah. with that. I mean, I wonder if... Here's my thing, though. I wonder if... if Kid Rock and Warren Zevon are enough opposite they would come back around the other side. So I was thinking about this because I, I think I became acquainted with this song from the tribute record, which doesn't come out until like 04. Hmm. So I mean, I've probably heard it, but I didn't really know it. And I heard on that tribute record, Enjoy Every Sandwich, which is an amazing name for a tribute album. It's a quote he said at some point in his career. There was this Adam Sandler cover of werewolves in London. And he, he does it weirdly straightforward. Like you're, you're like, does Adam Sandler have like an actually good voice? Like he leans into the character voice a little bit, but not near as much as you'd think he would with a song like werewolves in London. Uh, it's all sort of strange. Wait, what was your experience with this song? I, I heard it when I was really young and then it was confusing because it felt like a novelty song because I had LPs, and compilations that had novelty songs on them. And they threw that had like, yeah, well, it wasn't, no, it, it wasn't one of those songs, but it felt like it was like, yeah. hello, mother, hello, fada, my ding, right, 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 right. little red riding hood, right, right, right. Junk food junkie. And then here's a song where a guy's just pretending to be a wolf. <laughs> and the, and so it sounds like goofy. And so I just thought about the song. I had no idea until I became familiar with him about the significance of him as as an artist. What a prolific songwriter he is, right? And how he really influences yeah. so many people. But I mean, yeah, Warren Warren didn't like this song uh, after it came. Yeah. Now, here's a couple quotes <laughs> uh, about how he went on to feel about it. Early on, he will say that it is was a novelty hit, though quote not a novelty hit the way, say, Steve Martin's King Tut is a novelty which is funny Later, that's a funny quote because yeah. that's literally what you just said was like right. it feels like hello mudda hello fada but it's not and that's what warren was worried about he's like he didn't want to be yeah. lumped in with that stuff yeah and uh, king tut's a little goofier for sure in later years he's on record saying quote i don't think it was as big a hit as people think it was people remember <laughs> it from year to year, more and more, it's been in movies and it gets trotted out regularly, but it's not like as if it sold 4 million copies like a Paula Abdul single. You know what I mean? I love that he went straight there. Two steps forward, two steps back. You got to sell records like Paula Abdul. I didn't make that rhyme at all. <laughs> anyway. Well, we've established. I don't think you like the song. No. 
but we've established that other people did, and we've established that he is a real classic artist. Artist, and and there's no greater proof of this in this perception that people have of him than this quote from Jackson Brown. Somebody asked Jackson Brown about Werewolves of London, and he gave the most bullshitty answer I've ever heard, which is, "I think it's really about a well-dressed ladies' man, a werewolf preying on little old ladies. In a way, it's the Victorian nightmare, the gigolo thing. The idea behind all those references is the idea of the ne'er-do-well who devotes his life to pleasure, the debauched Victorian." gentlemen in gambling clubs consorting with prostitutes the aristocrat who squanders the family fortune all of that is secreted in that one line i'd like to meet his tailor <laughs> that's given a lot of credit to warren zivon i mean it, yeah. I, I love the guy but that's given him a lot of credit yeah in truth there's a lot more that to him to warrant and things that we could say and we didn't even you know we were not going to really get into the end of his life well um, i mean maybe we should for a second because like it is it is an interesting thing where you know this is an episode about this song it's not really fully about warren if we were going to talk fully about warren we'd have to talk about what a complicated figure he is and if you don't know much about him and you want to read about him there's a couple of really excellent pieces that are in the show notes one of them is uh, Steve Hyden wrote a piece in 2018 for the ringer uh, and it is about it's really examining the legacy of Warren Zevon and Stephen Hyden is a huge Zevon fan and so he puts himself in the article and he sort of renegotiates his feelings on Warren in, in this like real time and it's a long piece. And it's it's really well done. And he also mentions that – so Warren was an alcoholic. He was an abusive husband. He was – I mean, he had a lot of things that were detractions to him as a quality person. And when he gets clean, he does get clean eventually. And he will actually try to make amends. And he will ask Crystal, the woman that left Wadi Wachtel for him but didn't stay with him for that long – He'll ask her, because she's the mother of his children, to write his biography. And he he tells her, say everything. Don't leave stuff out for me. And so there is a book written by her that is brutal. And there is a lot of quotes from it in this article. So if you want to go deep in there, you can. But one of the things that I'd never heard, Murdoch, and I don't know if you know this, he basically finds out he has cancer in 2002. And this is something he had been worried yeah. about his entire life. Right. Yeah, he he didn't go to the doctor for 20 years because he was worried he'd get cancer. He just like it was a weird he was obsessive compulsive, which was not something people talked about in the 70s and 80s. And this was one of his obsessive compulsions. He also here's another weird anecdote. He lived next door to Billy Bob Thornton and became very good friends with Billy Bob Thornton because they're both OCD. That's right. That's right. They were friends. And so this this piece opens with a story about Warren near the end of his life walking into Billy Bob Thornton's during a party. And, I mean, this is literally one of, some of the best music journalism I've ever read. So if you have any interest in Warren, you need to go read this. But what he starts to uncover is the calculations that were made around Warren and his death. And, and like, if you follow Warren's career, it makes total sense that he would do this. But basically, the lore is that Warren finds out he's going to die. They give him, like, three months to live, and he lasts almost a year. But in that time, he decides instead of taking treatment and trying to put it off, he's going to record an album. And there's a yes. quote in this article where he is on the record saying to his publicist or somebody that's on his team, do whatever you have to do to make that, like, let's, let's capitalize on my death. Like, let's make money. Let's make money for everybody on me dying. 
Like he yeah. very much knew what he was doing. And so there's this like, and he does spoiler alert. I don't know. I don't want to step on you if this is what you're going to talk about, but it becomes his second most successful record ever. It, and it comes yeah. out 25 years after the peak of his career. It's called the wind. It comes out in 2003, 2002, Three. something like yeah. that. And it wins it's a bunch three. of Grammys in 04. And then enjoy every sandwich, the tribute record, which is a great way. If you just don't like his affectation, like if you listen to Warren and you're like, I don't really like the the vocal or whatever, or the different styles he tries in the eighties. Enjoy every sandwich is a great primer on what a great songwriter is. There's just some people who are like better songwriters than they are singers. I mean, Dylan is sort of that way. Um, yeah. But I mean, a lot of people will fight that and you fight about Warren too, but like magnetic fields is a great example of this for me. Like, I think yeah. that guy's one of the greatest. Stephen Merritt is one of the greatest living songwriters, but like, listening to him perform his own songs isn't all that rewarding. But if you go just look up, you can find tons of playlists that are just covers of magnetic field songs, right? So go find a bunch of covers of Warren Zevon songs and listen to the songwriting because it's epically good. And so the ringer piece in the show notes, I highly recommend. And I highly recommend the piece in the show notes from the guardian about his obsession with literary figures because like he used to hang out with Stephen King. Like he was always thinking in these very grandiose ways. And then, failing at life and trying to reconcile all of those things. I mean, he was, he was this huge influence on people, but he didn't see a lot of the rewards and he walked it all yeah. the way to death's door and becomes more famous after he dies. I mean, you and I both probably knew yeah. way more about him after he died than we did while he was alive. Yeah. And in a, um, postscript to the whole thing, after he had passed away, there was this um, looking in the rearview mirror with this interview that Letterman had with Zevon. Uh, Letterman and, loved him. That's another thing we haven't mentioned. But Letter, this is another thing where you expand yeah. the frame. He used to go on Letterman all the time, all the time. And then on his last appearance on Letterman, there was either criticism towards Dave, or Dave himself was disappointed in how he 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 handled that interview, um, knowing that. Warren was terminal and had cancer. And from that experience and that, like him doing that interview, like that's where I became really familiar with keep me in your heart. Cause I <sighs> didn't have the record and I didn't know anything about it at the time. But then I, I heard that and that song is. I, so um, I, I revisited beautiful. it this week. Cause I was like knowing this story, which I never known before that he was like sort of openly, like I'm just going to make a weepy album. That's going to give me a bunch of Grammys. Like, he, I mean, he like sort of, purposely was trying to do that uh it doesn't really lessen the song like that song is absolutely gorgeous mm -hmm. and like is it the most cynical thing he could have done like is it the most authentic to himself because again we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about him but his other work is baked in this cynicism there's just a lot of this like forward thinking but forward thinking in like the least positive way right about sort of how shitty the world is going to get and for him to walk all the way to his death and then just be like, yeah, now I'm going to cash in is like sort of the ultimate chess move for a guy who's lived his life that way. <clears throat> no one plays that move. Yeah. No one's, no, no one's thinking about it there. People generally are flailing away. Thanks for the letter. This is great. Uh, great timing. Fun to talk about this song. I mean, I think this is one of those weird moments in pop rock that people are always like, what the hell is that? And and now you know. It's an inside joke with an Everly brother. Uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to get involved. Uh, please check out our Patreon. Patreon.com. We got lots of good stuff up there recently, including we recently uh, threw up our playlist um, where we just had an 80s dance party, and that was fun. 
I had a good that time. Was awesome. I had a good time doing that with yeah. you. And you can get everything retroactively, five or ten bucks a month. Just uh, well, if you want the '80s dance party, that's at the ten dollar level. I'm just going to be honest. But most stuff you can get for five or ten dollars a month, and you just have to uh, head over to Patreon.com/slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Supporting the show goes a long way in helping us tell others about it, helping us get it into other formats, that sort of stuff, right? To keep the show going, and we appreciate that from you. And what should people keep doing until next time, Mr. Murdoch? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Keep telling, telling stories. stories. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.